Thanks so much, Dan, for leading us in an opportunity to express worship through prayer and also through scripture reading. Thanks also to Kevin and Cindy for the opportunity to express worship through music and for leading us in that way. I also want to take this opportunity to say thank you to each one of the technicians that each week work tirelessly to make it possible for us to have this live stream and to have our service in this way. You may not realize this, but it probably takes more work to do a service live stream than it does to do it live. And so a huge thank you to each one of the technicians that have been serving so faithfully over the last few weeks and making this possible. I want to echo that prayer of blessing that Dan has just given and extend a a happy Mother's Day greeting to each mother that's watching this live stream. This morning is that day that husbands often dread. It's like, did I remember? Yes, I remembered. Did I get something? Yes, I got something. Did I get the right thing? Uh, Total disclosure here, I one time forgot Mother's Day. The embarrassing thing was I was pastoring and planning services and I'd planned an entire Mother's Day service. Saturday night I crawled into bed and all of a sudden my heart stopped beating and I went, and Amy knew something was up and she looks at me and she goes, you forgot, didn't you? Now, I was living in a small town. There was no stores open Sunday morning. It's not like I could fake it and sneak out early Sunday morning and get something. Like, I was busted. I'd remembered to plan the service but forgot to get something to Amy. Well, my wife is amazing. She just calmly said, just go down to the cold storage and see what you can find. And there sitting on the shelf in the cold storage was a box of her favorite chocolates, which she had bought for herself. I grabbed a block of wood and a marker and I wrote on it, Happy Mother's Day from your blockhead husband. And I took them both back upstairs and gave them to her. The chocolates are long gone, but I think she probably still has that block of wood. You know, this is the day that we celebrate mothers. And we express love to them in different ways and demonstrate love to them in different ways. And I hope that this morning each one of the mothers that are watching this live stream and taking part in this service feel loved. Now, this morning, for our Pastors Club picture, it's really simple. Seeing as how it's Mother's Day, I want the kids this morning to draw a picture of how you show your mom that you love her. What's something that you do that shows your mom that you really love her? Draw a picture of it. And just a little note here, my intent with the Pastors Club was not that you know once you've drawn one picture, you're in the club and you get the ice cream at the end. The intent was, like, keep drawing the pictures every week. So, so it would be helpful for me. I get to know the kids a bit more. But also I hope that it's helpful because each week the pictures that are drawn actually help the kids to engage with what we're talk- talking about in the message. So please do, draw those pictures, get your parents to send them in to me, text or email or drop them off at church, and I do look forward to gathering with the Pastors Club when we're able to have that ice cream party, but that'll be a little ways off yet. Dan has just read for us a text from Scripture that is fairly familiar. It's one where a teacher of the law or a religious leader comes to Jesus and asks him a question. And the question is, what is the most important commandment? Now, just a bit of background. This, this may sound like kind of a, a, a abstract question, really. But to the religious leader, it probably was a serious question. 
Just before this, we've got a couple of questions that have been asked by religious leaders, and we're told specifically that they were questions that were asked to trip up Jesus, to try and get him to say something that the religious leaders wouldn't be happy with, that would get Jesus in trouble. But all of a sudden, we have this third question asked. And it says that the the teacher of the law, hearing that Jesus had answered wisely, asked this question. Jews, to this day, look at the first five books of the Bible, and they refer to them as the Torah. It tells the story of from creation to Moses' death just before he enters, just before the people of Israel enter the promised land. And the religious leaders at that time, they had studied the Torah, and they had put together a list of what are all of the laws that they were taught that they should uphold. What are all the teachings that we're giving? If you were to ask a rabbi even today how many laws are in the Torah, they most likely would give the answer 613. Not that I know this from having studied it, but fortunately, the Internet gives us this information. Interestingly enough, 248 of those laws are positive, things that we are to do. 365 are negative, things that we are not to do. Now, the religious leaders at that time, their desire was to teach these laws as faithfully as possible and to encourage all Jews to live by each one of these 600-plus laws. How well do you think you would do if you had a rule book with 600-plus rules and you had to live by it every moment of every day? I don't know about you, but I, I probably would be breaking rules that I forgot were even rules. And that's kind of what was happening. And so religious leaders started kind of categorizing these laws. And they'd look at what's the most important ones? What are the really significant ones? What are some categories that they fall into? And so I don't think that this religious leader was so much asking a question to trick Jesus. I think it was an honest question that he was asking because he was probably grappling with his own heart. How do I summarize these? What's the most important? And seeing that Jesus knew the law and had answered wisely, he asks this question. And Jesus summarizes all 613 laws in this way. He says, the greatest is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you find yourself feeling overwhelmed, anxious, almost not knowing what to do, useless in the current realities? I'm not just talking about COVID. I'm talking about any difficult circumstance we find ourselves in. If you're like me, a question that you naturally start asking yourself when you find yourself in a struggle is you ask, what can I do? How can I fix this? I'm a fixer. I I like to, to, to think logically through problems and figure out what's the plan of attack and to carry that out. And I think we're all created that way to a certain extent. Over the last few weeks, we've been taking a look at some of the tough questions that we ask during times of crisis. We've taken a look at who's responsible for evil. We've taken a look at the big question of why, God. This morning, I want us to consider the question, what can I do? Let's just think about COVID. I realize there's lots of other difficulties that people are facing and people watching this live stream. If each one of us could list what struggle we were facing right now and we could get that list sent to us and I could put it up on a screen so you could see it, we'd probably have a list about this long because everyone's going through all, all different things. But COVID is the one thing that we do have in common. 
So let's think about this. What can I do to fix the COVID problem? Well, I haven't got the resources or the skills to create a vaccine or a cure. That's way beyond my wheelhouse. I haven't got the position of authority or power to be able to make decisions for our nation that will do things. In fact, really, when it comes right down to it, there's not a lot that I can do. Or is there? Well, our leaders tell us, you know, wash your hands regularly, don't touch your face, practice social distancing. If you're not feeling well, be sure to stay home and isolate yourself. Yeah, we can do those things. But is there something on a much grander scale that we can do in the midst of struggles? I think there is. We can love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, we've been using the book of Job as the text for the last few weeks to to look at Job's life and see how uh, we get answers to these tough questions. And I want to take us back to the book of Job because the reality is we see modeled in the story of Job loving God and loving our neighbor in the midst of a difficult, difficult circumstance. If you're just joining us for the first time and you, perhaps you're not familiar with the story of Job, it's a story of a man who lost absolutely everything. His, his livestock was killed, his barns came down, his crops were destroyed, his kids were killed, his wife basically turned away from him and said, why don't you just curse God, like give up on all this stuff. And he lost his health. He had sores from his head to his toe, just awful, awful circumstances. But when we look at the story of Job, we see modeled loving God and loving others. The story of Job, as I've mentioned before, is 42 chapters long. The book of Job in the Bible is. And in that book, we have the story of him losing everything, the first two chapters. And we have the story of what happens after everything goes on and how God restores him and blesses him. That's the last half a chapter. So there's two and a half chapters taken care of. We've got four chapters of the book that actually are record for us God speaking to Job and to his friends. We've got 15 chapters that are Job's friends talking to him. But you know, the majority of the book is actually Job's own words. It's almost half of the book. Twenty and a half chapters. We have Job speaking to his friends and to God. And throughout his speaking, we see a number of themes that come through. First of all, we continually hear over and over an honest heart cry of just how awful things are for him. He doesn't hold back any punches. He lets everybody know who will listen. This is awful. It hurts physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. These circumstances are awful. You can just picture a man who is physically sick, whose heart is broken, and he's crying out and expressing the deep anguish and pain that he's experiencing. Now, I actually find that encouraging. Not that I ever want to wish bad stuff on anybody, but I find it encouraging the fact that Job is able to and is free to express his true inner feelings. Isn't it great that when we are going through tough times, we can 
express those feelings. We don't have to keep them bottled up inside and boil and, 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 and become more and more anxious about things. We can express those feelings. It's part of being created as emotional human beings. And Job models that for us, and I appreciate that. But there's another theme that Job has. Not only does he express how awful things are, he ends up having a conversation with his friends in which over and over he's actually refuting an accusation they are making of him. You see, his friends figure that the reason why Job is suffering is because he's sinned, and so he needs to just confess his sin and everything will be fixed. Now, we're going to talk about his friends in just a moment, but let's just say that that accusation was not the correct accusation to be making. If we look at the four chapters at the end where God is speaking, he specifically comes down pretty hard on those friends and says, no, that's not the case. But that is a theme that we see in Job's speaking. He cries out and expresses the anguish he's experiencing. He refutes the accusation of his friends, but he also makes a cry directly to God. He wants to plead his case directly to God. He cries out and asks to be able to stand before him as if he was standing before a judge in a court of law and to be able to ask his question, what have I done wrong? Is there anything I've done wrong? If there is God, you show me. And so we see that theme coming through as well. But you know, in the midst of all of this, we see Job's love for God demonstrated. Let me just read a few verses from Job chapter 9, beginning at verse 4. Job is describing God. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun, and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion and Pallades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. In the midst of crying out in anguish, In the midst of confronting his friends and refuting the accusation they've made, in the midst of crying out to God and asking to be able to speak directly to him, Job does not lose sight of who God is. And he expresses his adoration for him, his love for him. He actually goes so far as to express his ongoing trust in him. Chapter 13, verse 15, Job makes a statement, Even if God were to slay me, yet will I trust him. Or some translations say, put my hope in him. And so we see that Job models loving God in the midst of a tough time. But remember Jesus mentioned two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do we see people loving one another in the story of Job? Well, let's just think about his friends for a minute. 
His friends tend to get a bad rap. I mean, we look at the story and we go, you guys are a bunch of losers. You were supposed to be there to care for Job, and all you do is you point your finger at him and say, you've sinned. Come on, smarten up. Think about it. What have you done wrong? Get this right with God and everything will be fine. And we tend to give them a bad rap. But, you know, I think their heart was actually in the right place. Let me read for you Job chapter 2. Just a few verses beginning at verse 11. This is the description of his three friends. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. One of the commentaries that I was reading in preparation for this message pointed something out about his friends. This took a lot of time and effort for them to get here. We don't know a lot about his friends. We're told their names, and we're told where they're from. The description, Eliphaz the Temanite, we assume that, mean, we assume that means he came from the city of Teman. Bildad the Shuhite, it does not refer to his physical stature. He was taller than the height of a shoe. It actually refers to where he was from. Perhaps a tribe, perhaps a geographic location, we don't exactly know. Zophar the Naamathite, same thing. Now, keep in mind, the story of Job is one of the oldest stories we have in the Bible. If we read through the scriptures chronologically, it comes halfway through chapter 11 of Genesis. This is way before the time period when Job would have taken a selfie, hashtag life sucks, it would have been spread all over social media, his friends would see it, they'd get in their cars and they'd drive over and see him. No. Word had to travel by word of mouth. And so from Job's village... Word would have traveled to the next village and then to the next village. Have you heard about Job? Oh, poor Job. He's going through tough times. And word would have spread to the villages where each of these three individuals lived. And not only did they decide to come, they actually communicated with each other. Because did you catch what it says? They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize. This was a plan that they made. They had to communicate with each other then, make the plan, we're going to go. And to give an idea of how long it took for them to get there, did you notice what happened when they first saw Job? He was so sick that they did not recognize him. You ever walked into a hospital room to visit somebody and you had to do a double check on the name above the bed to make sure, is this the right person? Because they were so sick that you didn't recognize them. I mean, Job had sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. These sores were so bad that they were told in chapter 2 that he was taking pieces of pottery and scraping them to try and get some relief. By the time his friends showed up, he probably had open sores and scabs all over his body. He probably was curled up in a ball and weak physically. He probably was not eating very much in those days because he was not only suffering from a broken heart, physically his body was broken. And yet these friends 
came. Thought of something this week. Where was Job's extended family? Where were his neighbors in all the midst of this? And then I found the answer to the question. Job chapter 42, beginning at verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the troubles the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. When did his neighbors show up? When did his extended family show up? After this whole thing was done and God has restored his wealth, then all of a sudden his extended family shows up. The word comfort, it literally means to shake your head. But I can't help but thinking the shaking of the head was different for the friends than the family. For the friends, it was more, Oh, Job, I'm so glad you're over with this. But his friends, they came and shook their head in sorrow and they comforted him in the midst of his sorrow. The neighbors and extended family, they waited till it was all done to come and comfort him. But his friends came and demonstrated their love for him by taking time and effort to get to him, first of all. But then what does it say they did? For seven days they sat with him, and nobody said a word. Now, yes, their comforting did shift to counseling, then it shifted to confronting, and eventually it shifted to condemning. But I think these friends modeled loving your neighbor as yourself. But so did Job. You know, Job did get a little annoyed at his friends when they started pointing their finger at him. I love this description in chapter 13, verse 5. He describes his friend as saying, describe them as being worthless physicians. In other words, what he was saying was, guys, this is not helping at all. You're not helping the situation here. You're a worthless physician. And yet Job never once told them, get lost. Leave my house. I want nothing to do with you. You see, Job modeled loving God. But Job and his friends modeled for us loving each other. Now, something I want us to consider this morning is how do these two things fit together? How does the commandment to love the Lord your God and the commandment to love your neighbors yourself fit together? I like to use the image of a cross to think about this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the up and down beam of the cross. But did you notice Jesus didn't say, and the second is? He said, and the second is like it. The two are interconnected. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now think about the cross for a minute. If we took this piece off of the cross, what would we have? We'd have a post and a stick. A post and a stick. 
but in order to be a cross, they both need to be there. And I think the same is true of these two commandments. We need to be loving the Lord our God. But we also need to be loving our neighbor as ourselves. You know, the interesting thing about love, it's something that we feel inside ourselves. But nobody knows that we have it unless we demonstrate it. Even God himself, the scriptures tell us, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we demonstrate our love for God? Yes, we worship. Yes, we sing songs of praise. Yes, we pray. Yes, we trust. And all these things that we talk about. But you know, one of the most powerful ways that we demonstrate our love for God is by loving others. That's why Jesus listed these two and said the second is like it. It's because they're two commandments that are interconnected. They both are necessary. First John chapter 1 and verse 4 has these words. I just said the wrong reference. Let me try that again. First John 4, beginning at verse 20. It says this. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sister. John Bloom in his article, If We Love God Most, We Will Love Others Best, summed it up this way. God is very good at designing things this way. Our faith is revealed by our works. James chapter 2 tells us that. Our creeds are revealed by our deeds. Luke chapter 6 tells us that. And our love for him is revealed by our love for others, as we've just read in First John chapter 4. The reality is, that we must be demonstrating our love in order for others to know we have it. We must be demonstrating our love to God. And so we engage in worship. We express praise to Him. We trust Him. We obey Him. We follow Him. But we also should be loving others. And as we do so, we demonstrate our love for God, but we also demonstrate our love for each other. Now, just a little caution here. Remember we started this sermon by talking about the religious leader that asked Jesus the question? The problem with the religious leaders at Jesus' time was not the fact that they were trying to live by the law and obey those laws. Obeying the laws is a good thing. The problem is they lost sight of what the motivation for obeying those laws needs to be. Now, I, I mentioned to you that I, I'm, I'm a fixer. I, I think logically and, and can focus on tasks. That's a blessing that God's created me that way. It helps me through a lot of situations. But, you know, there's a risk that comes with that. I can focus so much on the task that needs doing 
that I lose sight of the motivation why I'm doing it. I can become so focused on the task that I am doing to help somebody that I lose sight of the person whom I'm seeking to love. Even in church, we can come to church on Sunday morning and we can become so focused on the fact that we come to church and we attend church and we sing and we pray and we study scripture and we do all those good things that we lose sight of the fact why it's important. Because it's a demonstration of our love to God. And as we gather together, it's an expression of our love to one another. As we fellowship together, encourage one another, as we study together, as we worship together. You know, even writing a sermon, I can become so focused on the task that I lose sight of the motivation. It's kind of important that I prepare a sermon every week. My job is to be a preacher, which means I probably should have something to preach on Sunday morning, which means I've got to spend time preparing it. But preparing the sermon and preaching the sermon in and of itself is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that I am expressing my love to God. And as I preach... I am doing so because I love others and I desire for others to grow in their relationship with Christ. What can I do in the midst of tough times? I may not be able to fix the problem. I may not even know what I can do in order to encourage others along the way. I may not have a clue what I can do, but I can always love God and demonstrate my love for God by loving others. And this is what gives us our motivation for some of the things we've been talking about over the last few weeks. As we've talked about these difficult questions, we've been, been ending each sermon by posing the question, so what? Well, it's important. We can acknowledge God is God, and I am not. We can seek to live in the reality of a relationship with God. We can trust God. We can worship God. And this week we add, we can love God, which means we will be loving others. But in all of this, let's always remember the true motivation is that we are seeking to carry out the greatest commandment which Jesus himself gave to us. As he summarized the law that's given throughout the Old Testament, he stated the most important is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Kevin and Cindy are going to lead us in a song at this time, and as they do so, I would invite us to use this time to reflect on what has been said. Not on what I have said, for my prayer is that though you may be hearing my voice as we speak, that ultimately you are hearing the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Spend this time as we have this song to reflect on what is the Holy Spirit saying to you. Perhaps you realize that there's an area in your life that you are not demonstrating your love for God or that you are not demonstrating your love for others. And humble yourself. Seek God's forgiveness 
and allow him to show you how you can demonstrate love in those areas. Perhaps you find yourself this morning realizing, I have never humbled myself before God and expressed love to him in the first place. Humble yourself and recognize the gift that he made on the cross when he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to forgive us our sins and ask him to forgive your sins and begin that relationship with him. Maybe you're here this morning and hearing these words, God has been reminding you of some things that you are doing well, ways that you are demonstrating love to others and love for God. Then give him the glory and honor and celebrate. Let's take this time to worship God for what he is doing in our lives as we sing this song together, a song that talks about the command that God has given us to love him and to love one another.